All right, so this is our last episode before Christmas. Yep, we're almost to our holiday break. And we got a lot to get into, so I'm just going to hit the music and start the intro. On Christmas Eve, 1945, a fire completely destroyed the home of George and Jenny Sauter, while they and nine of their ten children were sleeping. George, Jenny, and four of the nine children escaped the home and the bodies of the five other five children were never found. Hold up. Someone messed with my music. Shane. What is happening? I'm dreaming of a white <laughs> Christmas. What is happening? Just oh, yeah. like the ones I used to know. <laughs> Where the tree tops glisten. What is going on? <laughs> children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. It's, it's Christmas. Um, that was an abrupt shift in tone, but listen, I liked it. <laughs> listen, that. <laughs> White Christmas. Yeah. Is, that rendition is done by my very good friend, Sarah Giles. I really liked that. Yeah, it's so good. And listen, I'm not, you know that I'm not a big Christmas song person. Yeah. She, her, she put out an EP. Yeah. Called Holiday on Spotify. And I'm linking it in our post for the episode and in our description. It's so good. Okay, cool. So, yeah, that was really good. I definitely so good. want to listen to that more. And listen, so she did a bunch of songs. Mm-hmm. She there's five songs on this EP that are so so, so good. So it's going to be linked in there, okay. but um, so everybody can click on it and go listen. But like, legitimately, Sarah Giles is one of the most talented singers and songwriters that I've ever met. That's so, really exciting. Her and my very, very good friend Chris Kuski recorded these uh, these songs together. So, um, and he plays guitar and writes songs and stuff too. So, it's two of like the most talented people that I've ever met in my entire life. And so, they deserve all of the love and appreciation on their music that yeah, they can get. That's really cool. But where are you going to put the link on Facebook and Instagram? Facebook. Uh, it's harder to put. Links on Instagram, but okay, I'm going to share, I'll share like a story oh, Okay. and I'll put a link there and make it like a saved highlight. Yeah. So it's not going to go away after 24 hours. Yeah. And then it'll be on our Spotify. Okay. I was going to ask where to listen to um, Spotify. It'll be on our, on our description. So whatever, um, whatever podcast platform you listen on, there'll be a link to Spotify there. Okay. That's where so you can cool. stream it. So I really liked that, but legitimately like, like so much talent is they're so good and I love them. And so I, she released it on, I forget which day she was, she's been posting about it for a few weeks and, um, I finally got the chance to listen to it like a week ago. And, uh, I loaded, I was in Chick-fil-A parking lot of all places. (laughs) And right, I was naturally. like, I gotta, I gotta listen to this thing. <laughs> and I lit is so, so good. And so I, I got through like 
I don't know, three songs. I was like halfway through yeah. the EP and I messaged her. I was like, I just listened to this. I want to use it in the podcast. And she was like, yeah, I'll send you the file. Yeah. So they, Chris sent me, he emailed me like the, like the wave file, like the really high quality wave file. Yeah. So um, just from that little bit you played, I can already tell I'm going to love it. So I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing the rest. And the, the white Christmas version is like, kind of like, just like in the guitar part is like kind of like bossa nova ish. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I love it. So, um, but the, the whole thing is so good. And she has another full length album that is all her original songs called burning letters. So everyone go listen to that too. And Chris has a really good album called dandelion. Dandelion. I like that. Yep. So good. So good. The, hottest track on that album is lightly used okay. so it's like legit in my in my mind like top 50 greatest ever written songs <laughs> like, that's high praise yeah yeah i'm excited the, like it's definitely up there in like top ever rated best ever songs yeah. that i've ever heard so go listen to them and i'll link I them will. all yeah that's cool but anyway, it's, I, so I, I told her, I was like, it's kind of like a, it's a creepy podcast. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's not really like, it's not really a similar audience, <laughs> but no one doesn't like Christmas. I love Christmas. I love Christmas. I mean, ha- Halloween's my favorite holiday, yeah. but I really also love Christmas and I love Christmas music. So I'm excited about it. Yeah. I'm on board. But we get like a couple hundred listeners per episode that's so cool i didn't realize it was that high now yeah that's we couldn't awesome we couldn't fit that many people in your house De- no definitely not yeah. <laughs> definitely so, not <laughs> that's cool that we can help share yeah and like so it. which like isn't a lot compared to like other podcasts i guess mm-hmm. it's a lot for us because mm-hmm. we've only been doing this for six months yeah We've got a couple hundred people that listen. That's so cool. And so I, I was like, you know, it's not the biggest audience, but I want to share it. And she was like, yeah, by all means, I'll send you the file. So. Yeah. I'm glad she let you do that. Yeah. That's really nice. It's very good. It was and nice was, to hear new music. I was like, I have a funny, I have a funny edit. With yeah. The that was a crazy tone shift. But so. Good work. Anyway, a little <laughs> bit different intro music today than our normal <laughs> creepy. Yeah. Creepy Delta Blues kind of thing that, that I have. Right. Speaking of um, different than normal, tell the people how you almost ruined the podcast today and why we might sound different than we usually do. Yeah. So I didn't bring my microphone, a normal <laughs> microphone. <laughs> like the most important thing we need. <laughs> yeah. So I, me and Hannah used the same mics. We got two of them. And I forgot mine today i take it back and forth and the reason <laughs> i forgot it was because i was grabbing like other stuff yeah and i started a new job today and it's just everything like just a bit me- different today it all messed me up yeah you know when you do a routine and you have like it's like the same every time yeah you don't like maybe purposely do it the same every time but it's it is the same every oh, time definitely so like a two weeks ago I forgot my wallet mm-hmm. at home because guess what? It wasn't 
in the normal pile that I put my flashlight and my keys yeah. and my multi-tool and all my stuff. So, um, I forgot my wallet <laughs> and I had to get gas and my, oh, my gas no. light was on. Oh no. And so I pulled up to the gas station and I was like, I forgot my wallet. <laughs> and so, so I was like, well, maybe I can use tap on my phone. I can use the, um, the Apple pay on my phone, yeah, which works. But this particular gas station I stopped at has regular gas and diesel pump next to each other. And so I just tapped pay on the first thing that I came to, Uh which was the diesel. Oh, no. And I put my my pin number in and stuff. And I went to grab the handle and I was like, this is wrong. (laughs) Something is This is the wrong one. (laughs) So I had to like cancel it. Oh, man. And then go go to the like step a foot to Mm -hmm. the left. and. Pump regular gas. That's really funny. So, and it's all because it like my routine was messed up slightly. That's easy to happen. But we solved the problem. Shane's using my regular mic since he's doing most of the talking today. And I'm using a lapel mic that he found in his backpack that is clipped onto my shirt, which is kind of nice because now I don't have to like lean up to my mic. I'm just drinking my coffee, but I don't know what I'm going to sound like. So, surprise. Those actually, and this, I might be proven wrong for the podcast, but... (laughs) I've recorded a couple things with those, and they sound good when you process them. Yeah. So I'll so. throw the audio in to the normal yeah. processing I'm that sure I do. I'm sure it'll be fine. Just a heads up if we sound yeah. different. That's why. Right. If you notice, like, a drop in quality of Hannah's voice, it's <laughs> not the mic. It's just her voice. Yeah. <laughs> Give me my mic back. <laughs> so, anyway, um, this is... Country Roads Creeps. I wasn't ready. I had a mouthful of coffee. Yeah, I had a mouthful of coffee. <laughs> now you say it. This is Country Roads Creeps. Yep. <laughs> so, I love Sarah and Chris so much. I love them. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I love them. They're my, like, my two favorite people in, I don't want to dox them, but where right. <laughs> Wherever I used to live they at. live. Yeah. yeah. So, they're, they're my favorite. And they're so... So nice. Oh my gosh. Like there's not, you couldn't be nicer if you tried. Sarah's so nice. That's awesome. Uh, Like Chris is so nice. They're the best. This whole podcast is just going to be me praising them. (laughs) We're not even going to get to the Sauter family, which is what this episode is about. So anyway, it's history time. You know how we like to cover history? Yeah. It's good background. George Sauter was born as Giorgio Sodu or Sadu in Tula, Sardinia, Italy in 1895. He migrated to the US at 13 with his older brother who went back home as soon as they passed through customs, which is weird. Um anyway, Giorgio in America started becoming known as George And kind of odd, but he never spoke about why he left Italy, which is even weirder that he would never talk about it, but his brother left and went went back back immediately. He would like refuse to talk about it if people asked. It didn't really say that, but he just never talked about it. Hmm. And probably maybe he didn't really refuse to talk about it, but he probably like changed the subject. Yeah. So it didn't really come up. Um, anyway, he found work 
in Pennsylvania at the railroads carrying water and supplies to workers, and then later on took a better job in Smithers, West Virginia, as a truck driver hauling like fill dirt and uh, coal that was mined in the area. And he married Ginny Cipriani, who was a storekeeper's daughter and who also immigrated from Italy as a child. Do you know what the difference between immigrated and immigrated is? I, I wait, are you, you I, just said the same word. I M M immigrated and oh. E M immigrated. One is like coming into a country and one's going out of the country. Yeah. But I don't remember which. I think immigrated e- is like M- when you're moving yeah. into the country. Immigrated. And em- that, okay, that's another example of like our dialect is we do not pronounce that short I and short E differently. It's going to sound like we're saying the exact same word. But I think the one with the I is when you move into a new place mm-hmm. and E yep. is when you leave. Yeah, so she, if you say that she immigrated from Italy, it's E-M. But it was spelled differently, and I had to look it up, so then I learned a new word. Nice. I'm 27 and learned what immigrated meant. It's always good to learn something new. So they settled right outside of Fayetteville, which actually has, slash had, a huge Italian immigrant population. And so does Clarksburg, actually. They've got a... Italian Heritage Festival. That's cool. Uh, every year. I didn't know that. Shout out Marissa Bailey. Um, also, like, the most nicest singer ever. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, the wiki article says in 1923 they had their first 10 children. They actually the had first them. first 10. They had them over the course of, like, 20 years. From 1923 to 1942. Sheesh. <laughs> yeah. So, I was like. I was like, no, that's super, when I read it, it's like, that's misleading to me. It's like, you had, it's like Octomom. Remember that? Yeah. She had like eight kids at the same time. Yeah. That's crazy. Anyway. So they had 10 children over 20 years. Yeah. From 1923 to 1942. Okay. Um, anyway, George's trucking business prospered and the solders started to become according to this county magistrate, one of the most respected middle-class families around. George held a pretty strong beliefs about everything, pretty much, from like business or like local stuff to current events and politics. And he was still really reserved about his childhood and what it was that made him want to leave Italy. But he had pretty strong views on Mussolini at the time. And kind of leads me to believe that maybe there was something like political in Italy going on in like the early 1900s, like kind of before, I guess, Mussolini came on the scene. I don't know when Mussolini became dictator there. You know that I know nothing about history and timelines. Um, Now now that I'm saying it out loud, I should have like looked it up, but (laughs) I'm I'm wondering if there wasn't like some political thing that made him want to leave. And then his brother was like, no, I want to go. Go back. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. I'm sure somebody will let us know. Um, you should have asked uh, Professor Keith. He could have helped. Keith. Hey. Hey, Keith. Keith at Concord. When did Mussolini become dictator? And then when I see him at chess club, he'll be like, <laughs> oh, it was this time. So anyway, Or he'll message me on Facebook. <laughs> um, anyway. He would get into these heated debates with other Italians about Mussolini, and he wasn't afraid to just to share his disdain for 
the dictator. Mm -hmm. So Mussolini is a bad dude. Yeah. Like another guy that we know. I'm not <laughs> I'm not gonna make the joke, but there's another guy who is a bad dude. Yeah, fair enough. Um so that brings me to this series of odd events that led up to the fire that burned their house down. Um by this point, the oldest son, Joe, left home to join the military. He was fighting in World War II. And in 1945, Mussolini had been deposed and executed, but people in this town still had hard feelings towards George for his, like, quote-unquote, perceived harsh opinions towards their beloved Italian leader. Mm. So, um, a guy came by in the fall to ask about hauling work, uh, like the truck driving work. Yeah. And ended up meandering around to the, the backside of the house and pointed out these two fuse boxes and said, those will cause a fire someday. Oh, no. Which struck George as weird, considering they just rewired their house after having an electric stove installed. Mm -hmm. And everything was inspected by a local electric company. And they pronounced everything good. Yeah. Um, a life insurance salesman came in October and said some pretty strange things. Uh, after George declined his sales pitch, the man said, your house is going to go up in smoke. Oh. And oh. your children will be destroyed. And you will be paid for your dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. Not good. It's not. So, some of the older solder boys noticed a strange car sitting on the side of the road watching the younger solder children walk home from school. And then we get to the night of the fire. So do you have anything to say before we get into the fire about some of the strange goings-ons beforehand? Um, not really, other than the obvious. There's like some pretty scary foreshadowing from the comments those men made. Yeah. It's alarming. <laughs> like, I mean. Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, not foreshadowing ideal. is a good word for it, yeah. Yeah. Not but, ideal. So, night of the fire. The Sodders celebrated Christmas Eve. The oldest daughter, Marion, had a job at a dime store, and she came home to surprise her three younger sisters with new toys. A dime store? Yeah, at the time there was a dime store. Is it like a dollar store? Like, yeah, but this was before the United States went off the gold standard and completely right. ruined the currency. But, so it's just like so, a, a store that sells a variety of Conspiracy episode. Things. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I just so. have never heard that term before. You've never heard of a dime store? Uh-uh. Yeah, it's back when everything wasn't expensive and people <laughs> could afford to buy eggs. <laughs> okay. So. Sells a little bit of everything. Shout out the U.S. petrol dollar, anyway. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> this is a topic for another time. Here. We're getting unhinged. <laughs> so bring it back. <laughs> bring it back. <laughs> so anyway, um, the kids asked to stay up a little bit later. Uh, and Jenny, the mother, said they could stay up as long as the son's 14-year-old Maurice and his 9-year-old brother Louis remembered to bring the cows in and feed the chickens. And George, um, the oldest son, John, who was 22 at the time, and George Jr., who was 16 at the time, were already asleep. And after reminding the boys to do the chores, Jenny took their two-year-old daughter, Sylvia, who was the youngest, upstairs, and they went to bed. And at 12.30 a.m., the phone rings, 
And Jenny gets up and goes downstairs to answer it, and a woman's voice was on the other end, which Jenny didn't really recognize. And the woman asked for a name that Jenny wasn't familiar with, and Jenny told her she had the wrong number. And she said that the woman kind of had a strange laugh, whatever that means. And there were people laughing and glasses clanking in the background. Weird. So on her way back to bed, she noticed that all of the downstairs lights were still on and the curtains were still open and the front door was unlocked. And she saw Marion asleep on the sofa in the living room and assumed that the other kids were upstairs in bed. And she turned out the lights, closed the curtains and locked the door and went back to her room. So about an hour later, she heard a loud, sharp bang on the roof and a rolling sound, like mm. something rolling on the roof. Yeah. And she didn't hear anything else after that, and she dozed back to sleep. And after about another half hour, she woke up again. But this time, smoke was pouring into her room. Oh. Talk about a white Christmas, am I right? Shout out, Sarah Giles. That's not a good promotion. She probably wouldn't like that. Probably not. Cut that out. <laughs> um, when she got up, she found uh, that the room that George used for his office was on fire near the phone lines in the fuse box. And she woke George up, and he woke up the older sons, and both parents and four of their children, Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr., escaped the house. And they were yelling for the other children who were presumably still upstairs, Mm -hmm. but they didn't hear any responses. So they couldn't run upstairs because the staircase was already completely engulfed in flames. And John tried to alert his siblings, but it was sort of weird. And I'll get into that in like just a second. Mm -hmm. Give me like two more paragraphs. So the trying to get help in the first place was like oddly complicated. It's like Murphy's Law of Disasters. Like, your house is burning down, and everything that you try to do is going to be messed up. So, the phone didn't work. So, Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the Fayetteville Fire Department. And a driver on the nearby road also saw the flames and called from a nearby tavern. And they were unsuccessful, either because they couldn't reach the operator because the phone there turned out to be broken. Or um, the neighbor or a passing motorist was eventually successful in getting to the fire department from another phone in the center of town. So I've kind of seen like both tellings of it. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, kind of, it's just like a, everyone's phone Something doesn't work. So, yeah, oddly. So George, who was barefoot, on Christmas Eve in West Virginia, attempted to climb the house's wall outside and broke open a window, and he cut his arm in the process. And he and his sons would try to use a ladder uh, to the attic to rescue the other children. Uh But it wasn't in its usual spot resting against the house, and it couldn't be found nearby. And a water barrel that could have been used to extinguish the fire was frozen solid, which that's not the weirdest thing because it's December. Yeah. But also, sucks, Um, George tried to pull both of the trucks he used in his business up to the house and climb them to the attic, but neither of them would start despite working perfectly fine like the previous day. So, the six 
Sodders, who had escaped, had no choice but to watch their house burn down and collapse over the next 45 minutes. They assumed the other five children had died in the blaze, and the fire department, low on manpower due to the war and relying on individual firefighters to call each other, did not respond until later that morning. That's so sad. Uh, Chief F.J. Morris said the next day that the already slow response was due to the fact that he didn't know how to drive the fire truck. The chief? The chief didn't know how to drive the fire the truck. The chief didn't know how to the drive chief the truck. Didn't know how to drive how the, the truck. How how do you get to be the chief? You, you can't drive the truck. Know the right person and local politics are mega corrupt. That's unreal. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. that makes me really angry. <laughs> he so I wrote I wrote so this says um he couldn't drive the truck, and he had to wait until somebody who could drive was available. And I made a little note there that says, it literally could not be that hard, dot, 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 WTF. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, um, how, this was, what year was this? 1945. How big were fire trucks in 1945? Pretty big. Okay, but, like, you could probably still figure it out if you're a firefighter. If yeah. you're the chief. But, you know, they didn't have sirens back then. So they had a guy on, like, one of those mouth tube things that amplifies it. And he had to go, wow, wow. I can't tell if you're joking. That's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> okay. Just, I, sometimes I'm not sure with you. <laughs> yeah. Did you believe it for a second? I was undecided. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So. That's funny, though. The firefighters couldn't really do much by the time that they did respond. Except look through basically the ashes, the whatever's left of the house. Chief Morris told the family that they didn't find any bone fragments or organs as they would have expected if the children had died in the house. Um, but we'll get into that like slightly later. Okay, because I do so, have a comment, so I'll save it. Okay. What's the comment, just in case? Um, the comment is, like, do we really trust them to look for the bones and organs? Because they sound very incompetent if they don't know how to drive a fire truck. Yeah. Are they really good at looking for clues and evidence in the ashes or whatever? Yeah, we'll get into that. Okay. So, modern firefighters and fire investigators have pointed out that the initial search was pretty cursory. Yeah. And, like, yeah, it looks like a house burned down here. And they not really look through anything necessarily. Um, we have a boo button. Good. But so Morris believed that the children died in the fire, and he claimed that it was hot enough to completely incinerate the bodies. And Morris told George not to disturb the remnants of the house so that the fire marshals could do a more thorough investigation. But after four days, he couldn't stand to look at it anymore. So George bulldozed everything and filled it in. And he wanted to place a memorial garden for the missing children. And so a local coroner convened an inquest the next day. And it held that the fire was an accident caused by quote-unquote faulty wiring. Mm -hmm. So, mm. it's at this point that I want to go through some of the more weirder points of it. Do you have any comments before I do that? 
Um, are we gonna talk about like how the mom heard something on the roof? Does that come back into play? Yes. Okay. Then that's all. Okay. So, first of all, the phone call is always listed as like the first thing that's weird. Um, which I get it because it, it's a little weird. But if there's a party in the background going on, then it's, I mean, it's feasible that they could call the wrong number. Yeah. So, I mean, whatever. Maybe it is weird. But anyway, um, some accounts have suggested that the wrong number phone call might have been somehow connected to the fire. But investigators later located the woman who made the call and she confirmed that it was just a wrong number. Yeah. On her part. I could see that. So, when John tried to alert his siblings, the missing ones in the attic, he initially said that he actually went up to them and made it seem like he saw them. But later on, during the investigations, he changed his story and basically said that he never actually saw them, but just yelled for them. So, it was a little bit odd, but I can understand in the heat of the moment and like shortly thereafter, not really being able to completely and like clearly explain what you were doing or seeing. Um, and like eyewitnesses are like the worst evidence that you can use. That's true. So there's a, there's a clip from, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson has this story where he like did jury duty and they, one of the questions was, um, that like, Basically, do you think that you could convict somebody based on eyewitness testimony or something like that? And he said something along the lines, I think this is correct. I haven't seen that clip in a while, but mm-hmm. I think he said something along the lines of, if that's the only thing, my experience says that eyewitnesses aren't that reliable, and yeah. I would feel pretty uncomfortable about convicting somebody if an eyewitness is the only evidence that you're presenting that's fair. In that's not refuted. Yeah. And the judge said, okay, so you don't trust eyewitnesses um, or something mm. like that. And he was like, he was like, <laughs> it took everything that I had not to say, you're an eyewitness to what I just said and got it wrong. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, you just twisted it. But eyewitnesses are not good. And you, I mean, you're, you're dealing with this incredibly stressful situation where your house burned down yeah. and your siblings might be dying. Yeah. I can understand where you might not be clearly explaining what exactly you did. What exactly. But sure. anyway, uh, for George, when he was trying to get upstairs to rescue the children, he ran into a bunch of tro- problems with like every attempt. So the ladder was gone and it wasn't anywhere nearby. They actually found it later at the bottom of this embankment, 75 feet away, which to me seems like somebody threw it over there. And then the trucks, which were running recently, wouldn't start now. And a witness came forward claiming that he saw a man at the fire scene taking a block and tackle used for removing car engines. So could he be the reason that the trucks didn't start? Um, and so George believed that they had been tampered with and it may be the same man who stole the block and tackle and cut the phone line. 
Yeah. So I guess this, it was their block and tackle that was stolen. Um, and that's what this person saw. So, um, one of George's sons in laws told the Charleston, Charleston Gazette in 2013 that he believed that the Sodders, um, or sorry, that George Sodder and his sons might have, in their hurriness to start the engines, they might have flooded the the actual engine. So, mm-hmm. which I don't know how easy that would have been. I don't know what trucks he had. I don't yeah. really know, but maybe. So, uh, the chief is a knucklehead, and <laughs> he said he didn't find any remains. But then that doesn't match with what the Sodders learned two years after this fire. And the chief apparently told somebody else that he found a human heart in the rubble, but decided what? to quietly bury it and forgot, quote unquote, to tell George and Jenny of that discovery. Whoa, 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 whoa. Not, so not a single part of that makes sense. When the Sodders heard of that, they demanded that the chief show them where the heart had been buried. And a funeral director identified the object as beef liver. And so I saw an account where he's hid it inside a dynamite box and buried it at the scene. Which, who has a dynamite box? I mean, like, don't say me, but... Um, uh, like, my jaw just dropped while you were saying all of that. None of that makes any sense. None of this whole thing makes any sense. Yeah, fair. None of this okay, anything. Like, can then, how do you, I don't even know what I'm trying to ask right now. Yeah. Can you find an organ after there's been a fire? Yes. Okay. So we'll get into it. Okay. But. And then why would he just go bury it? That doesn't make sense. He, we'll get into it. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Well, I'm, I'm just like stunned this right is, now because this is insane. This is what you call pomp and circumstance. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I'm so, just flabbergasted. Me too. <laughs> Um, so Ginny didn't understand how five children could die in a fire and not leave bones or organs or flesh or nothing. Yeah, fair. So she conducted a private experiment burning animal bones, chicken bones, beef joints, pork chop bones, just to see if the fire would consume them entirely. And each time she was left with a heap of charred bones. And she knew that remnants of various household appliances had been found in the burned out basement. Still identifiable. Mm-hmm. So, an employee at a crematorium told her that bones will remain after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. Wow. And their house was destroyed completely in 45 minutes. But it's also been reported that the basement might have had coal in it. Mm-hmm. which might make the fire burn a lot hotter than the typical 1,100 to 1,500 degree house fire. Huh. So, maybe, but that still would require, I'm going to get into it at the end with like some of my personal opinions. Yeah. But it still would require that all of those five solder children manage to, when the house collapsed, go through the attic floor, through the main floor, and into the basement where the coal was burning. Yeah. And be buried by the house. 
Completely. Man, that's so horrible to think about. And then they would all burn at like 2,000 degrees for like multiple hours while it was still, yeah, you know, after it had already collapsed and was still burning. Yeah. Which is, I think, is super unlikely. Mm -hmm. But anyway, there was a telephone repairman that told the solders that their lines appeared to have been cut, not burned. And they realized that if the fire had been electrical, then, um, and the result of the faulty wiring like that, one uh, investigator said, um, then the power would have been dead. So how do you explain the, the downstairs with the lights on? Mm-hmm. And their Christmas lights were still on. So one day, while the family was visiting the site of the fire, Sylvia found a hard rubber object in the yard. And Jenny recalled hearing the that thud on the roof and the rolling sound. And George uh, concluded that it was a napalm pineapple bomb. What? The type used in warfare. I'm sorry. The, there was a bus driver that passed through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve and said he saw some people throwing balls of fire at the house. Uh, and the family later complained, or not complained, what am I saying? Claimed. That contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, the fire had started on the roof, but there was no way to prove it now. Then came the reports of the sightings. Sightings? Yep. Do you, before we get into that, do you have anything? No, I'm just actually stunned. <laughs> like, this is crazy. Yeah, this is an insane story. I heard summaries of the story, like I knew what it was mostly about, but I didn't know all these details. And I'm glad that I didn't know, because it's making for great storytelling. It's very, very sad, of course, but it's just also, like, insane. Because this is just, nothing makes sense. The sightings. Alien sightings? No, children sightings. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Imagine if there were aliens now. (laughs) Aliens on the roof. Aliens in the blood. Aliens in the blood. Call back. First episode. (laughs) Um, So there was a woman who claimed to see the missing children looking out of a passing car window while the fire was in progress. Um, Which, now that I think about it, I don't know how that makes sense because it was midnight, after midnight, like 1 a.m. So um, there was a woman operating a tourist stop between Fayetteville and Charleston like 50 miles west, and she saw the children the morning after the fire and said, I serve them breakfast. And there was a car with a Florida license plate at the tourist court too. And there was a woman at a Charleston hotel who saw the children's photos in the newspaper and said she saw four of the five a week after the fire and said the children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. And she said in that same statement, I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. And they registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. And one of the men looked at me in a hostile manner and he turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. And immediately the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more, and they left early the next morning. End quote. Hmm. So, in 1947, George and Jenny 
sent a letter about the case to the Federal Bureau of Investigation and received a reply from none other than, guess who? Who? J. Edgar Hoover. Really? And he said, although I'd like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. End quote. And Hoover's agents said they would assist if they could get permission from the local authorities, but the Fayetteville police and fire departments declined the offer. Which is weird. So next, the Sauters turned to a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley, who discovered that the insurance salesman who threatened George was a member of the coroner's jury that deemed the fire was an accident. And I'm going to read this excerpt from the Smithsonian Magazine. Okay. Um, It says, Over the next few years, the tips and leads continued to come. George saw a newspaper photo of of the school children in New York City and was convinced that one of them was his daughter, Betty. And he drove to Manhattan in search of the child, but her parents refused to speak to him. In August 1949, the Sauters decided to mount a new search at the fire scene and brought in a Washington, D.C. pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter. The excavation was thorough, uncovering several small objects, damaged coins, and a partly burned dictionary and several shards of vertebrae. Hunter sent the bones to the Smithsonian Institution, which issued the following report. The human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years old. The top limit of age should be about 22, since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. And on this basis, the bones show greater skeletal maturation than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy which was the oldest missing solder child. Mm-hmm. And it is, however, possible, although not probable, for a boy 14 and a half years old to show 16 to 17 year old maturation. And the vertebrae showed no evidence that they had been exposed to fire, the report said, and it is very strange that no other bones were found in the allegedly careful excavation of the basement and of the house. Nothing that the house reportedly burned. Uh, or sorry, noting that the house reportedly burned for only about uh, half an hour or so, it is said that one would expect to find the full skeletons of the five children rather than only four vertebrae. And the bones, uh, the report concluded, were most likely in the supply dirt uh, used to fill in the basement to create this memorial for the children. Hmm, that's interesting. So. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. He used fill sure. dirt and it had a 16-year-old's backbone in it. That's, yeah, because if it wasn't the oldest boys, whose was that? So it says later, Tinsley supposedly confirmed that the bone fragments had come from a cemetery in nearby Mount Hope. What? But he couldn't explain why they'd been taken from there or how they came to be at the fire site. And the Smithsonian returned the bone fragments to George in September 1949. And according to their records, the current location is unknown. Oh my goodness. So the investigation and the findings attracted national attention. And the West Virginia legislature held two hearings on the case in 1950. Afterwards, 
Governor Oki L. Pattison and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sodders that the case was hopeless and closed it at the state level. And the FBI decided it had jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but they dropped the case after two years following leads that didn't go anywhere. Yeah. So George and Jenny erected a billboard along Route 16, Mm -hmm. and they passed out flyers offering $5,000 reward for information leading to the recovery of those children. And then they increased the amount to $10,000. And a letter arrived from a woman in St. Louis saying the oldest girl, Martha, was in a convent there. Another tip came from Texas, where a patron in a bar overheard an incriminating conversation about a long-ago Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia. Then there was someone in Florida who claimed that the children were staying with a distant relative of Jenny's. George traveled to the county, um, sorry, traveled the country to investigate each lead and returned home without any answers each time. Sad. Yeah. So in 1968, over 20 years since the fire, mm-hmm. Jenny went to get the mail and found an envelope that was addressed only to her. It was postmarked in Kentucky but it didn't have a return address. Inside was a photo of a man in his mid-twenties. On its flip side, a cryptic handwritten note that read, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, LL Boys A90132 or 35, end quote. I don't know what the word LL is. It's capital I, Lowercase L, lowercase I, lowercase L. Huh. I don't know what any of that meant that you just said. Cryptic. Yeah. So, um, Jenny and George couldn't deny the resemblance to Lewis, who was nine at the time of the fire. Hmm. But other than the kind of obvious similarities, like the dark hair, the, um, the dark brown eyes, they had the same kind of nose they have the same like upward tilt on the left eyebrow um but like they they hired this private detective and sent him to kentucky and they never heard from him again oh weird yeah that is weird concerning so maybe maybe he met like a goth waitress. Shane. Like you'd never Sometimes hear from me you again just say either. Things and <laughs> crazy things to say. <laughs> so, uh, the Sodders feared that if they published the letter or like the name of the town uh, on the postmark, that they might get their son like hurt or something. Yeah. Um, so instead, they amended the billboard to include an updated image of Lewis and they hung an enlarged version over the fireplace. And, uh, this is a quote from George. It says, uh, time is running out for us, but we only want to know if they did die in the fire. We want to be convinced. Otherwise we want to know what happened to them End quote. So he died a year later in 1968 
still hoping for a break in the case. Jenny erected a fence around her property and began adding rooms to the home, and she built layer after layer between her and the outside. Since the fire, she had worn black exclusively as a sign of mourning and continued to do that until her own death in 1989. The billboard finally came down. Um, Her children and grandchildren continued to investigate, and they came up with some theories of their own. Uh, The local mafia had tried to recruit him, and he declined. They tried to extort money from him, and he refused. The children were kidnapped by someone they knew. Someone who burst into the unlocked front door told them about the fire and offered to take them someplace safe. They might not have survived the night, but if they had, and if they lived for decades, if it really was Lewis in that photograph, they failed to contact their parents only because they wanted to protect them. Hmm. Those are some of the theories. Anywho, Sylvia Sauter Paxton the youngest surviving solder child died in 2021. Oh, really? Yep. She was in the house on the night of the fire, which she said was her earliest memory. Quote, I was the last one of the kids to leave the home. She recalled in the Gazette mail in 2013. And she and her father often stayed up late talking about what might've happened. Um, I experienced the grief for a long time. She believed that her siblings survived that night and assisted with the efforts to find them and publicize the case. And her daughter said in 2006, she promised my grandparents she wouldn't let the story die and that she would do everything she could. That's kind of like a hopeful little message, I guess. Yeah. She tried her whole life to figure out what happened. I really don't know what I think other than this is just a tragic story. Oh, yeah. I couldn't imagine something happening to my kids and, like, not getting any closure, not really knowing yeah. for sure what happened. Or, That's like, just, your siblings um, or something. like Yeah, or, like, any family member, really. And I, I know yeah. that, hap- that does happen to people, like, missing person cases that don't get solved and stuff. And that's just just horrible. I feel really sorry for the family. Yeah. Yeah. It's no good. I don't know what I believe theory-wise other than it's just a tragedy. Well, we'll get into some of that. Yeah. In a little bit. Maybe not necessarily theory-wise that I believe, but mm-hmm. kind of wrap it up. Yeah. With a bow on top. So George Bragg, who was a local author, wrote about the case in his 2012 book called West Virginia's Unsolved Murders. And he believes that John was telling the truth in his original account when he said that he tried to physically wake up his siblings. Yeah. Before they fled the house, and he allows that that particular conclusion might still not be correct. And he says, logic tells you they probably did burn up in the fire, but you can't always go by logic, end quote. Stacy Horn, who she did a segment on the case uh, on National Public Radio, that's NPR, for those of you who don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know what that... I put it in there. <laughs> I didn't know what NPR was. I was like, I thought it was just NPR. I didn't know it was <laughs> National Public Radio. You learn something new. <laughs> so I know that Howard Stern is on it, right? Oh, that I don't know. I think so. It's going to be embarrassing if he's not. 
um, the 60th anniversary in 2005, she did a piece on this, the fire. And she believes the children's death in the fire was the most plausible solution. Um, and she made a post on her blog. There's a new word um, here, too, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce it. Um, but the the where I was reading this, it says she made a contemporaneous post on her blog. Contemporaneous? Yep. Okay. So, she noted the fire continued to smolder all night after the house collapsed, and that two hours was not enough time to search the ash thoroughly in the morning. So, even if it had been, uh, the firefighters may not have known what to look for. Yeah. However, she says, there is enough genuine weirdness about this whole thing that if someday it is learned that the children did not die in the fire, I won't be shocked. End quote. So the History Channel aired an episode of History's Greatest Mysteries covering the case in 2022, last year. And that's pop culture stuff. Mm -hmm. That's all I saw on it. Really, as far as like TV or movie wise. So, theories. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Are you ready for this? Yes. Are you ready for this? <laughs> yes. Okay. There's not much to go on here. Honestly. Yeah, clearly. Um, the children could have been victims of human trafficking, which did exist at the time. But why would you need to burn down the house? And. I think that kind of comes from the car that was watching the children come home from school, but again, it doesn't really tell the full story. Yeah. Um, it could have been mafia tied. The theory I've seen that the Italian or the Sicilian mob didn't like what George Sauter was saying about Benito Mussolini. Mm. But I was like, why is that a theory? Because Mussolini was a dictator. Yeah. I was kind of confused when you were saying that earlier. Which... Typically, people don't like dictators. I know there are people who do like dictators. Um, like, they have supporters. Yeah. But he's a dictator, and the mafia is organized crime. And so I looked it up, and I was like, did the mafia like Mussolini? And guess what? They didn't. So the fascist regime fought the mob, and Mussolini actually ordered the government to eradicate the mob and all of mob activity in the area. And the Sicilian Mafia undermined the fascist rule in Sicily, and eradicating their power would also help Mussolini stomp out all of his political opponents since most of the Sicilian uh, politicians had mob ties. So, why would, why would the mob like Mussolini? They don't. They wouldn't. So, the Italian Mafia used its power in New York also, um, and the control that they had over the ports to keep an eye out for U-boats and any suspicious characters coming and going. So, safe to say the crime organizations weren't big fans of any fascist or dictatorial governments. Do you know what a U-boat is? Uh, when I worked at Dollar General, we called these carts that the products came on U-boats, but that's probably a different context. <laughs> okay. What's the context of your U-boat? A U-boat? I thought a U-boat was like a 
German destroyer or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought it was just like a big battleship. A U-boat is like the first submarine. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the Germans made that. submarine and they would go shoot uh, ships underwater and they couldn't be detected because it was like a brand new thing, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, submarines are kind of cool. I've got like a short episode on the list for like submarines. Creepy submarines? Yeah, because some of them are kind of weird. Oh, totally. And the first submarine. Yeah. You know what the first submarine was? No. It was either the Revolutionary War or the Civil War. But basically it was like a barrel that had like a straw that you could breathe through. (laughs) And the guy (laughs) sat in it and he had like a bomb attached to a stick. Uh, And he died also when he exploded the bomb. Oh. So. Bummer. Yeah. But it's kind of like cartoonish in a way. Oh. So that means it's funny. Anyway. It doesn't. Um, the more logical arson reasoning that I've seen is that your standard non-criminal Mussolini supporting citizens in the area were the ones that took enough issue with George Sauter's criticisms to start a fire. But also, if the kids weren't there, then they had to be removed. So who did that and why did they do that? Right. And some people say that a person didn't have a problem being part of the scheme to burn down a house, but didn't want to be complicit in burning five kids alive. But the issue here is, how would you ever know who was and wasn't going to be trapped if you remove them beforehand? Right, because they didn't take all the kids. And also, if you're burning down a house on Christmas Eve of all days, I'm going to assume you don't really care so much about the people who yeah, might die in that fire. You're not a good person if you're doing any of that. So, also, also, the kids might very well have died in the fire if there was coal in the basement. Plenty of articles say that the house was destroyed in 45 minutes, but that doesn't mean that the fire stopped. It could have burned for hours and hours. Yeah. And the coal feeding the flames from the basement and the children trapped with those flames could have been incinerated over near six to eight hours of burning. Um, That's enough to destroy the bones? Maybe. Um, there, I mean, like I said, the normal house fire is like 1100 to 1500 degrees. Yeah. But you have to have above 2000 degrees to incinerate a body. And the coroner said, we burn them when we burn them up. Bones might still be there after two hours of burning at 2000 degrees. Right. So for that to have worked, it would have had to be really hot from the coal and smolder for a while. Yeah. And and still, my point is, they were in the attic. Yeah. yeah. So when the house collapses, they had have to go to, through all that stuff. They have to go through everything and be buried. The attic floor has to bury them, and the regular house floor has to bury them. They have to be underneath all of that. And how much coal is down there? Yeah. So it just doesn't really make any sense yeah. how that would happen. But anyway. I don't know how well bone fragments would blend in with just like normal burnt rubble either. So it's like possible that small pieces of bones were present. Um, Like, I don't know. They could have been overlooked in the initial cursory investigation. Um, Unless someone had seen like a full bone shaped object, I guess. 
I don't really know, or like a skull or something. But to counter that, there's plenty of times from the house, um, or plenty of items from the house that were still recognizable. And I know like, like metal and stuff doesn't burn the same, yeah. but you, there's still stuff you can see. So you would think out of the five children, there would be like, I don't know, like an arm or a leg or something or a skull or out. pick one. There's going to be a bone somewhere. Yeah. That wasn't like completely incinerated. Like not all five of them and all of their bones were in the perfect spots to be completely turned to ash. Yeah. Over the entire night. So I don't really believe that at all. But nothing is super clear about what those items might have been that were still in the house. So it might be like hard to believe that you've got entirely cremated to dust bodies, I guess. Um, five total. And then still have some normal items remaining is kind of my main point. Yeah. So, regardless of whether the children died that night or not, there's too many odd occurrences leading up to that fire and for the years afterwards. So, a lot of people say that the children died that night and it was just too much grief for the family to bear, which I guess is plausible, but I think that's a huge simplification of an answer, sort of a cop-out too. I think it's a lot more likely that what did happen was pretty mysterious just because of all of the odd things that happened before and after this mm-hmm. fire. So that's pretty much it. That's a lot. Yeah. That's definitely one of like those big up there unsolved mysteries. Yeah. Just what in the so, world happened? What are your thoughts? Do you, <laughs> is there anything that nothing cohesive? Is, is there anything that's like unanswered for you? Like, no, you did a you did a good job like covering all the what ifs. It's just like those big questions. Why didn't they find their bones? Were they actually there and they just missed them? Were they in the house? Did they get taken away? Things that you won't be able to answer. You have all these ideas, well maybe this happened or maybe this happened. But no no one really knows. It's just really unsettling and very upsetting. Yeah. It's yeah, it's a Definitely very a sad. weird one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I hate that for the family that they didn't yeah. get closure. Yeah, it's hard being like. Well, it's hard for everyone in the first place, but it's hard, especially for like the parents who have ten kids. Four of them survive. One of them was in World War Two. Mm-hmm. And the other five are like gone, like they just vanished. Yeah. And like, I know that obviously we still have unsolved cases that happen today. Like, there's still a lot of things that happen, and you don't really get closure or answers for it. But I am thankful, you know, that technology has progressed to where we are now. That if this happened in today's time, it's pretty unlikely that you wouldn't be able to solve it. 
Yeah. And like, it's very unlikely that the fire department wouldn't come until the next morning. Right. You know, it's, it's, I'm thankful that in this time we have more resources now so that things like this can be avoided, but it's just. Yeah. So did you know sad. that law enforcement can ping your phone even if it's off? It's like it's last known location. No, to like where it is right now. Oh, how does that work? The, your phone's never off, off. Oh. So it's always na- like current yeah. modern phones. I mean, that's good and bad. Are never off, off. <laughs> yeah. Good if you're in oh, trouble it's and you only need bad. help. It's only bad. <laughs> I mean, if I got kidnapped and I happened to have my phone on me somewhere, I would hope someone would find me. No. <laughs> Cut your losses. Good and bad. Bad that you're being tracked at all times. But yeah. if like, what if you get lost in the woods? And you don't have service to call for help, but then get they can find it. you. <laughs> get over it. I'd want to be found. It's, no, I get, I get that thing. But if you're trying to do crimes, don't take your phone with you. Then, Duh. yeah, you can't take your phone. I mean, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> then how are you supposed to get directions to your crime? Get the burner phone. Yeah. Toss it when you're done. But so there's actually been stories of like, um, like law enforcement being able to like if they're if they want to track somebody mm-hmm. and they have used to be they had to have access to your phone to be able to like install something and they've got yeah. this um i think it's called oh i, I don't even want to say the name of what it is in case i'm wrong because there's so many bad things that the government has code names for like <laughs> stingray and gorgon eye and yeah like all this stuff anyway um used to be that they would have to have access to your phone so like either you they get it somehow and get physical access to it or they can they have like a super malware now where if you click a link that has this it'll automatically download and they can access your phone remotely without any kind of like you being able to detect it at all the screen doesn't come on that's alarming the yeah <laughs> yeah that's um, a big concern and that's just what we know about i just so, kind of assume that the government knows everything on my phone anyway because they do yeah which is fine for you because you're not doing anything bad yeah <laughs> and fine for me because i'm not doing anything bad <laughs> government anyway but there's like was like stories of like people who, you know, they they're like, oh, I had my phone off and they still got me. Yeah. Or like, I saw one thing where they, you know, they were like, well, we don't know exactly what these two people are doing, but they both travel to the same spot like once a week, mm-hmm. and about a mile outside of this spot, they both turn their phones off, <laughs> and then about an hour later, both of the phones come back on about a mile away but they're both going opposite directions yeah so suspicious so that's weird (laughs) and then so we go look at those people and get access to like some of their phones and then you know it's just yeah so yeah they it's just the government can do all kinds of stuff anyway the technology has advanced enough that like unless you commit like the perfect crime there would and, like, even with the fire, you know, fires today, they can tell exactly what started it, where the fire started, how it spread. Like, they yeah. would be able to tell today if it had started from the electrical wires or from whatever it was thrown on the roof. Right. They would know that for sure. I don't understand how that works. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I get if the fire starts and you put it out. And then they can tell, oh, this is the most burned part, and it's like your circuit yeah. box or something. Or your, I mean, your breaker box, mm-hmm. right? But if you, if I started a fire here with a match. Yeah. Matches are made of wood. And wood burns. How would you ever find my match? <laughs> I don't know. So. I'm not a firefighter, but it's cool that they can do that. Yeah. I mean, you think about how much, like medicine has advanced how you have all this testing for stuff that you used to not be able to test for it's kind of like that i mean yeah better technology now right they've completely eradicated smallpox right yeah as far as i know unless it's making a comeback but (laughs) not that i know of (laughs) they've like completely eradicated it i think there's there's like a lab sample somewhere. Yeah. In like a well, couple there places. was also like measles and mumps was pretty much eradicated until people quit vaccinating their kids and they started making a comeback. Yeah. Well, Unfortunate. Anyway, <laughs> we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> I just want to make jokes, but I don't want to be like. Let's just move on. I just want to move on because they're going to be like, whoa. The, You're going to have to cut some stuff out. They're like, wow, Shane's anti-vax even though I'm not. Yeah. I just want to make fun of stuff. Oops, I kicked that. Better be sorry. <laughs> but uh, anyway. I just I just want to make fun of everything. Yeah, that's your personality. Because <laughs> everything is ridiculous, but not everyone takes it the same way. So they're going to be like, ooh. I wonder, well, I don't know. I've already said enough bad things about the government for people to be like... Back to your notes. Get back to your notes. (laughs) Is there anything else on there? No, I wrote it's it. Okay. Yeah, that's just, that's a crazy story. It's one of those ones that you really just don't have the answers to. Every, Every little piece of information you get opens up more questions. Definitely a creepy one. A weird one for sure. So I, our favorite source, Reddit. Um... (laughs) I was on there looking up, uh, like this stuff and it, it's so stupid because people, people on there, it's like they will put an opinion and it's like, I was researching the case and I was looking this up and they're like, somebody was like, you guys need to get over it. The kids died in the fire. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. And no, there is questions about it actually. And, <laughs> and people were like, responding to that guy like how were there not if there weren't any questions about it then it would be solved yeah there are questions clearly. and you would have found the bodies where so where are the kids and he's yeah. like they're in the basement they're like they're not they weren't found because that nobody found them there well they are just trust me like I, source trust me bro yeah so i don't know i just I get so irritated. It's just like saying that the kids died in the fire and that's what happened is such a, like an oversimplification of like yeah. what It's like, yeah, maybe happened. they did, but there's not solid proof of that. Yeah. All right. Well, good storytelling. I was definitely intrigued by this one. Very shocked at multiple times. Um, this is, our, like you said earlier, this is our last episode before Christmas. So I hope yep. that everybody has a really good Christmas. I hope that you get to see your family, travel safe if you're doing that. And we'll be coming back after New Year's. Yeah. Do you want to give a date to that? Do we know yet? Uh, we tried to talk about it on the last episode, and it was a bit of a rambling mess. Here, look at this calendar. Do you know by looking when we're coming back? I can't even 
do my regular calendar. What is up with this? <laughs> it's sometime Show at the beginning of January. That's probably all we need to say. Beginning of January. Yeah. I think our next episode is probably going to be on the 11th. So one month. That looks now. right to me. Yeah. So it's uh take a little bit of a break and we'll come back strong in the yep, new year strong with all kinds of conspiracy theories we're doing waco we're doing <laughs> ruby ridge we're doing the oklahoma city bombing the best thing that happened to the atf <laughs> since freaking before they were founded we're doing abraham lincoln we're doing jfk we're doing mlk we're doing malcolm x Stop. we're doing tupac we're doing biggie we're doing daggone who shot 50 cent you, know you can find me up in the club bottle full of above <laughs> You know what you look like right now? What? With the gestures and everything? The Charlie with the billboard? No, you look like Rick at that one of the end of the seasons of Rick and Morty. When he's <laughs> saying all the, all, the, all, the, all the adventures that he and Morty are going to go on. <laughs> That's what you look like. We're... <laughs> it's you and me, Morty. <laughs> You and me, Morty. Season three. <laughs> yeah, that's what you just reminded me of. You embodied that. <laughs> no, we're gonna do. We're gonna do Project Manhattan. We're gonna do the Demon Core. We're gonna do. We're gonna do the Chronovisor. We're gonna do. We're gonna do so many insane things. It's gonna get weird. It's, it's gonna get weird. <laughs> It's, I'm scared. I'm so excited. 2024 is the year I'm going to like. You're really going to just go off the rails. I want to say I'm going to red pill our audience, but that's been taken over by like a certain political ideology. Right. I'm going to, I'm no. going to gray pill everyone. What? A neutral color. <laughs> neutral color. Brown pill. Oh my gosh. And everyone's going to know the truth. I'm going to not do conspiracy theories to balance this podcast out because I can't handle that from you all the time. Hannah's going to do normal stuff. Normal but I'm going to get unhinged. <laughs> You've been looking forward to this for months. I'm so excited. <laughs> Literally since we started and we made the very first version of the Google Doc where we started writing down ideas. You have been looking forward to I this put time. every bad thing that's ever happened we're gonna do the unabomber we're gonna do we're gonna do the um <gasps> there's a new cult in ohio did i tell you about that no oh we definitely need to talk about some cults those oh, are weird the branch davidians is waco creepy so and they're cool guys don't say that about a cult who did nothing wrong cult. shane you can't say that about a cult official statement from control stop <laughs> Stop. I'm going to quit. We, so there's a new cult in Ohio. Last thing I'm going to say before we sign off. Okay. There's a new cult in Ohio and they're like a, like they claim to be a Christian cult. Mm -hmm. But it's like four dudes or five dudes who run it and they all say that they can write gospel. Oh, and so no. they can write new gospel and they speak to Jesus and they're like up there, like they're enlightened and all this stuff and it's insane it's so crazy okay write that down it's already written down <laughs> write that down write that down and we're gonna do you look insane right now shane's holding like a half gallon of chocolate milk <laughs> waving it around in the air lit off like that is about to spill everywhere and you it's are not. rambling like a madman about all these conspiracies you're making me nervous we need to end this episode now. 
and we're gonna do Jennifer Tanga, and we're gonna do. <laughs> we're gonna do so many cool things. We're gonna do Alexander Perichinko, okay, that's and enough. we're gonna do. To the side those are the first two episodes: Perichinko <laughs> and. Tinga. You're about to start foaming at the mouth. So anyway, already, already am. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This is Ben Country Rose Creeps. You can find us on all the major <laughs> podcasting platforms. And if you love us, you can leave us a five-star review and follow us on the Instagram and the Facebook page and listen to Sarah's music and be safe driving home. Watch over the not dear. Bye. Bye. Ha, ha, ha.